And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a dozen years in, and the FedRAMP program is still a steep climb. Plus, the NGA seeks ideas for using data to predict illegal fishing. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal employees are just getting their first paychecks of the new year with that 5.2% raise. But Congress is already starting to look ahead to 2025. House and Senate Democrats once again have made a pitch to give feds a much larger raise next year. Stop us if you've heard this before. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And how much is actually in that latest bill for 2025, Drew? For 2025, House and Senate Democrats are looking to give federal employees a 7.4% pay raise. And this is as part of the what is called the Federal Adjustment of Income Rates, or FAIR Act. And you see this same bill get introduced year after year. I believe it's been around for about a decade, uh, where you have a lot of Democrats in Congress saying that they are pushing for you know more, better pay for federal employees and that it would support them in a lot of different areas. This year's 7.4% breaks down into a 4% across the board raise plus a 3.4% locality pay adjustment. And it was introduced by Senator Brian Schatz and uh, Representative Jerry Connolly. So they're saying this is an adjustment to get them up federal employees, that is, up to a higher level historical because it is an election year. So they they don't dare say it's because of inflation, because that would then impute inflation on a Democratic administration. Right. I think the, the reason that they are you know pushing for this and that they have for several years is because they say that they're for a long time have been struggles to recruit and retain federal employees. Um, and they believe that, you know, just having a larger pay raise would just make sense for them. It would be very beneficial to the workforce overall. So that's why they continue to to push for this, even though it's never actually been legislation that's been enacted. Uh, they want to, you know, just continue to push for that. So the 7.4% you said is composed of a 4% across-the-board salary increase for everybody in the GS, I guess, and the 3% for locality. How do they come up with that? So it's not just, you know, a number pulled out of thin air. They do have a method for how they get to that 7.4%. The uh, 4% comes from actually a law from 1990 called the Federal Employees Pay Comparability Act, or FEPCA, and that law authorizes agencies to give a pay raise that is the uh, Employment Cost Index, or ECI, minus half a percentage point. And the ECI, just for anyone who doesn't know, that is the percent increase that private sector wages saw over the last year. So it's the idea there with FEPCA is to try to keep federal wages in line with those in the private sector so that's where the base percentage comes from, that 4%. Then on the other hand, you have the locality pay adjustment, and that's where you see a little bit more of a difference here. Uh, for the FAIR Act, they use the rates of inflation from the last year. So with those being about 3.4% uh, during 2023, that's where they got that 
number. And then combined, of course, you get the 7.4%. All right. That makes sense. I guess it gets back to the eternal argument. Are feds paid less or more or about the same relative to their counterparts in the private sector? And I've always felt there is really no single answer to this because it depends entirely on the job you're doing. Some jobs, they're way below the the, uh, private sector. Some, they're actually better. You're you're right, Tom. I think that there are a lot of people who push for that or say that, you know, it's not it doesn't really make sense to have just one pay increase for every single federal employee. You have some sectors like in, you know, technology, like IT, cybersecurity, uh, who maybe are paid a lot less than the private sector, others where it maybe is a little bit more comparable in other types of occupations. So I think you have this this conversation and somewhat of a push for uh, broader pay reform in that sense and to try to look at it in a little bit differently than just, you know, one number based on location. Uh, but at least in terms of this bill and this push from Democrats, I, uh, they're working within what the laws and um, what actually is done right now to to consider this raise. And do they have any Republican support whatsoever, either in the House or the Senate? Uh, so far, they do not. I believe last year's FAIR Act got a couple of Republicans on board, uh, but generally this is a pretty, uh, you know, there's a pretty partisan divide on this bill, and a lot of Democrats are the ones who are who are pushing for that larger raise for federal employees. But there have been years, I mean, this bill comes up annually, and there have been times when there is a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, and it hasn't passed then either. That is a really good point. Um I think maybe there's just not enough attention on the bill, or maybe it's never just been pushed towards um, a floor vote or taken up in a committee. Uh, But yeah, no, it is true that this bill, it's been introduced every year, uh, but most times, much more often than not, the uh, Congress actually just defers to the president and that whole um, process for determining the the pay raise rather than enacting something themselves. Yeah, that's the pay agent, a three-person pay commission, so to speak, that makes that recommendation. And pretty much that's what happens. The president puts it in, nobody objects in Congress, and therefore it flies through. Generally, that is the process. I think for 2025, you know, we just saw the 7.4% for the FAIR Act for the actual uh, proposal from the Biden administration. We'll see that coming up in the budget request in March, most likely. Um, and then that's the, the starting point of that whole process. Then you have the alternative pay plan in August and the finalization in December. That's generally how it goes. Uh, I don't know that there's anything really indicating this year that we'll see the FAIR Act or something similar get uh, pushed forward on. But, you know, there's always a chance. And I think that's why you have Democrats like Connolly and Schatz really continuing to push for this. And, of course, the 5.2 percent raise did go through, even though the appropriations bills for 2024 still haven't been passed. And the latest continuing resolution has a few more weeks to go before the next big showdown. And so that's good news. Feds did get their raise, despite the fact that there's no appropriation. Right. And that it may, might make things a little bit complicated, Tom, for agencies who are now having to offer those bigger raises to federal employees with the same budget that they had last year. It's a little bit hard to maybe figure out or scrape together where to get the money to pay federal employees more uh, with that 5.2 percent raise. But, you know, like I mentioned, the 5.2 percent was what was included in the budget request, and that whole process went through without uh, Congress really mentioning or bringing it up at all in the appropriations 
And that's why we have the raise, but no uh, appropriations yet. Well, they might do it by the CC approach, the C-squared approach, cut contracting. (laughs) Maybe. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, the NGA seeks ideas for using data to predict illegal fishing. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Illegal fishing harms the legal fishing industry and endangers the marine ecosystem. That's why the Coast Guard and other agencies spend so much time trying to detect and stop it. Now the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is launching a prize challenge for data-based ways to get on top of illegal fishing. For details, here's research and development scientist Mike Brady. Mr. Brady, good to have you with us. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you. And let's start with, well, has the NGA ever had a role to date in the illegal fishing idea, or is this something new for the agency? Yeah, so this is a uh, space where NGA is getting more into, as you know, or maybe some of your listeners, if they're not familiar, NGA is in the business of providing geospatial intelligence, or GEOINT for short. GEOINT tells us where something happens and when, and NGA does have a role in, especially more recently, in providing information on where fishing and illegal fishing is occurring around the world for GEOINT, and we support our combatant commands so they can keep track of what's going on in their areas of responsibility. And this challenge is really about complementing the work that's being done at NGA focused on detecting fishing and illegal fishing. We're looking to forecasting such activity, which goes hand in hand with detection. And just a detail question, I think of NGA as mostly data based from satellite imagery. And is the resolution these days sufficient from satellites that you can see what's going on at the level of a fishing boat? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is more on the detection side, but sure. Yeah, we, we, we detect boats. And tell us about this prize challenge. You've got a million-dollar prize for a data-based approaches using open-source data to help forecast. What are you driving at here? At NGA, much of what we do is what we call anticipatory analysis. So we want to know what happens before it does, right? It's one thing. It's super important and necessary to be able to detect fishing activity to make a determination. Is it legitimate? Is it not legitimate? But it's also extremely useful to anticipate where fishing activity is going to occur so we can be more prepared to address those threats. So the idea is the combatant command or the Coast Guard or somebody that you could alert could head off that fishing before it happens. That's correct. All right. We need to preserve those herring stocks, that's for sure. And so how does the contest work? What are you looking for from contestants or people entering you know, this idea contest? What are you looking for? Yeah. So this is a two-phase challenge. We actually just started. We kicked off on 8 January. The first phase of the challenge is going to go through 1 March. We're asking participants to forecast what's called fishing effort You know, we grid the world up by one square kilometer and we count the time that fishing vessels spend in those square one kilometer cells. That's called fishing effort. We're looking at forecasting future fishing effort as we can compare it against historical. That's one way we're we're evaluating contestants, but we're also interested in a written summary of how they're approaching the problem. And that's something where we're looking to learn about innovative data sets, new ideas. That's one thing, you know, with this challenge, it's a way that the NGA can complement its traditional acquisition process, you know, things we're not thinking of. So great question. We're looking to see what kind of data can be brought to bear on this challenge from participants. 
and the contest notes that you need to use open source data, data available to anyone. You can't use secret government data, I suppose, to try to find this out. Without giving away the contest, what are typical of the types of data sets that might be able to be enlisted in this process? So the challenge, of course, we're looking to uh, what data sets are in the public domain, also commercial data sets, obviously unclassified. We anticipate participants making use of what's called automatic identification systems, data AIS. This is vessel broadcasts its location and inputs some characteristics into that data so we can know where the vessel is and where it's going, where it's been, and a little bit about that vessel. So we anticipate that being part of this. One thing that comes up is when you're looking to the future is where are the fish dock? Where are they going? That's not typically, you don't care so much about that when you're detecting. You just you can just you sort of see where the vessels are, where the activity is. But when you're looking to where they're going to go, maybe fish dock locations, habitats may be more relevant in this case. But again, we're really looking for, I don't want to hint off exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for the innovative solutions that come out of industry and academic partners. We're speaking with Mike Brady. He's a research and development scientist at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So at the basic level, if the world is divided into kilometer squares and a vessel moves through three of them diagonally, you probably know what direction it's going in. So what you want to do is build on that kind of basic idea and to really get predictive about where is it going to turn right or where is it going to turn left, that type of thing. That's right, yeah. So I mentioned the AIS data. You can have a ship that identifies as a fishing vessel, but that doesn't mean it's fishing when it's traveling diagonally through three cells. So it's really, to be able to get at that, we need to assess the behavior. So what is the vessel doing? Is it meandering? Is it sort of having the behavioral characteristics that tells us, oh, it's probably fishing? And then you start counting up the time it spends in those square kilometer cells. And I guess there's probably no limit to what you could feed into algorithms to try to determine these things. For example, what if that boat was also docked alongside some type of military vessel or other unknown vessel? They were both in the same dock, you know, at the same time. And one goes one way, one goes the other. The other's headed toward a war zone and maybe has munitions aboard. But it could be the fishing boat that has the munitions or this kind of thing. I'm just making this up. But There's a lot of parameters, actually, that could conceivably come into understanding intention. Yeah, no, terrific point. So in addition to forecasting capabilities, we're interested in putting these forecasts into relevant context systematically so we can serve it up as not just here's data about where fishing is likely to occur, but what are some useful context information that can help us interpret what that means? And one way we kind of bake this into the way we're evaluating the challenge is we want to hear about ideas to summarize information like Where is the activity occurring within relevant fisheries management zones, such as exclusive economic zones, regional fisheries management organization zones? That's information that helps analysts say, okay, this information is relevant for these particular regulations or laws, and it helps sift through the data and information and determine is this legitimate or illegitimate activity. This sounds like there could be some real wild card types of people entering I mean, lots of people know marine activity and they know about the automatic identification system. Ships sometimes trade transponders to fool people tracking this kind of thing. They all know this goes on. But I would think this is where some wild card thinking could really come to bear. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, 
I'm really interested to see who comes to participate in this challenge. We have a first engagement with potential participants. We're doing an Ask Me Anything session. It's going to be my first sense of who's um, going to participate or maybe maybe thinking about participating. As far as eligibility, the challenge is open to U.S.-owned companies. It's open to U.S. citizen students, and it's open to other U.S.-based industry, academic, and other organizations the one key thing is all participants need to have an active registration at SAM.gov. But really, yeah, I'm interested. I hope we bring new faces. Sort of one, one thing we get out of this challenge is expanding partnerships. Uh, we hope that this uh, connects us with individuals that can do things for NGA that aren't in our uh, existing orbit through the traditional acquisition process. And this first round will result in a certain number of finalists that will go on to develop their ideas further? Yeah, absolutely. So the first phase, uh, which, as I mentioned, the engine ends March 1. Uh, we'll have an interagency panel of expert uh, judge the performance on the forecasts, and they'll select up to 10 finalists who will be awarded each $25,000 apiece, and they'll be invited to participate in phase two, which will start um, as soon as phase one ends on 1 March. And then the participants will go through another round of fishing forecasts. They'll uh, refine their written concept of operations where they're explaining the, the way they've approached the problem. Phase two will culminate in a pitch event to the interagency panel, where we'll then use that information to select first, second, and third place. First place gets 500000 second place 200000 and third place uh, $50,000. All right, so that's when you get the real dough to start doing something. Mike Brady is a research and development scientist at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a contractor's email attachment binds the government in a work order, or tries to. Plus, a dozen years in and the FedRAMP program is still on a steep climb. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A cloud computing security program established in 2011 continues to present difficulties to government and industry. We're talking about FedRAMP, the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program. It's a way of establishing that cloud computing service companies are secure. But more than 12 years in, the program still has cost uncertainty, and agencies don't always use FedRAMP-approved vendors. That's from the Government Accountability Office. For the latest look-see, we turn to the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, Dave Hinchman. Dave, good to have you back. Tom, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. And FedRAMP rolls on and on, and I guess more vendors are getting certified under FedRAMP. It's a complicated process for them. So for the government, you found issues with them sponsoring vendors to become certified, actually using certified vendors. And on the vendor side, you found uncertainty and uncertain costs of getting certified. So what's the, what's going on here? So I think that you really zeroed in on the key aspects of what we found in our study. You know, we were asked to do three things, sort of do a survey of who's using uh, FedRAMP for what reason, how much does FedRAMP cost an agency? Conversely, how much does it cost one of the, the cloud providers? But then also what are the challenges that both the agencies and the providers are facing and what, an o, what are OMB and GSA doing to look at that. And I think you found, I, I think you zeroed in that you're right. It's 
the process takes a long time. There's a lot of uncertainty. People aren't always sure about what they're supposed to do. And that's on both the federal and the private sector side for the service providers. And I think there are some signs that some of that's going to start to clear up over the next couple of years. But right now, it certainly is an ongoing issue. And it sounds like there may not be enough of the industry that's FedRAMP certified because you found that several agencies, at least the CFO, large department agencies, use for cloud services companies that don't have FedRAMP certification. Yeah, and it's hard to tell what the root cause of that problem is. Certainly, there was an issue with OMB not monitoring the use of of authorized providers. Um, They admit that that's been a problem. They have put into place a process to more closely monitor that. The process was just coming online as we were going to print, so we don't have any good visibility into what that looks like, so that should make a difference. But I think that there's also just because it can cost a lot of money, People get into the FedRAMP, they think, hey, this is great for our business, this is the private sector side, and then they discover this onerous federal bureaucracy, and they realize it's maybe not all that it's cut up to be, that it can actually be a long, expensive process to become a certified provider. And discuss the issue or the process of a agency sponsoring a company. They don't pay for their FedRAMP certification, but how does that all work? Yeah, there are two different avenues that an agency and a provider can take. One is a more centralized process called the Joint Authorization Board, which is established when the program was created, was codified with the uh, FedRAMP Authorization Act that was just recently passed. And then there's the agency authorization pass, which is where the agency takes on this process on its own. And real quick, the Joint Authorization Board is a centralized function, people appointed by OMB, and service providers sort of offer themselves up as we would like to become authorized. They go through security assessments. They go through the centralized process. Once you're approved, then you're an authorized provider that agencies can contract with you. For the agency authorization path, this is maybe uh, an agency has a longstanding relationship with the cloud provider, so they want to maintain that. And so the provider goes through this one-on-one process with the agency itself. They get assessed by an outside third party, and then ultimately they're authorized. And both can be take a long time. We've heard reports of stakeholders in the process not being responsive, and this is at the FedRAMP level, uh, which you know creates uncertainty, plus the cost issue where no one's ever really sure what this is going to cost. Right. That's an issue for industry is the going through the assessment. What are the costs? What are the cost components for industry since it's a government-appointed group of people that are doing the assessment? Yeah. Well, Tom, I can't tell you that. <laughs> and that was one of the things we found. Uh, when we went and talked to agencies, you know, hey, what does a FedRAMP authorization cost? We couldn't get a solid answer, and there's no good data available. In fact, most of the numbers we did get were actually after-the-fact cost estimates where an agency had to go back and try to tease out the numbers. And that's because OMB hasn't required agencies to track the discrete costs involved in getting the FedRAMP authorization. You know, we got some estimates that range from tens of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. And I think with that cost uncertainty, and you mentioned this at the top of our conversation, is probably going to scare people away. Because if you don't know how much something is going to cost, you're going to be really hesitant about jumping in and, and trying to get part of that. And so I think that was one of our key recommendations is that OMB require agencies to discreetly track the cost of these authorizations so that they can standardize that. And more importantly, OMB can really determine whether this is creating more cost-effective cloud services, which is one of FedRAMP's goals from the very beginning. 
We're speaking with Dave Hinchman. He's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. And what about the issue of agencies trusting the certification that someone has that they got through another agency sponsor that it's good enough for their own agency? That was the basic premise of FedRAMP to begin with. Yeah, and that's not working as well as as I think as people would like it to be. And I don't know that we were really able to get to the root of what that is. Um, I think when you look at, in our report, we discussed these six challenges that people reported to us. And I think if you look at sort of the currents that run through those challenges, it has a lot to do with not great communication within the program and people just not really understanding what they're getting into. And so, you know, you've got this as you mentioned, you know, maybe one company that has the centralized certification, so anyone can sign up with that. But why aren't they doing that? Well, there are things like agencies say they don't have sufficient resources to do this. Uh, they don't get timely responses from the FedRAMP program, which I mentioned. Sometimes they find service providers that aren't fully prepared to provide the cloud service that they're supposedly ready to do. Uh, and as well as internally, things like finding an agency sponsor as well as sort of more obscure things like uh, meeting FedRAMP technical and process requirements, which is required like agencies and cloud providers to totally change their security infrastructure to be compliant. Right. Agencies have never had much trouble finding unique requirements of their own that therefore we can't use this other certification that agency B has, has established. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think that really creates an environment where there's a need for more standardization. And OMB has mentioned this in the guidance that they issued for public comment this past fall. Comments closed at the end of December. The guidance will be coming out soon. They're talking about up-leveling some of those requirements so that you don't get as caught up in the minutia of agency as this, agency A has this requirement, agency B has this requirement. And I think, you know, I'm cautiously hopeful that taking that sort of higher level view is going to help more people get in than these uh, companies that already have existing authorizations. And the cloud service providers reported, and I'm reading from your summary, they faced issues, including lack of consistency when engaging with third-party assessment organizations, outsiders. It strikes me this is like a big lesson learned for the Defense Department's CMMC program, which is entirely reliant upon third-party assessment organizations across a much wider swath of industry than the FedRAMP program. So it strikes me this is something DOD ought to pay attention to. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it's a hard challenge. If you look at, uh, in our report, we have a table where we talk about different efforts that OMB and GSA are taking to address these six challenges we identified. That problem with the third-party assessment organizations is the one thing where there's nothing currently underway to address that. And so I'm not sure people really know how to get at that issue. And, um, and so I think you're right, linking that to the CMCC, uh, or excuse me, CMC is really important because that's what they're going to be relying on as well. And is your sense FedRAMP officials at GSA, I mean, they're earnest. They've been at this for, for a dozen years now, generally agreed with what you found out and they're trying to get around these problems? I think I mentioned the the monitoring program that's coming online uh, to look at monitoring with compliance. They've talked that they are going, once they identify cloud instances that are not part of FedRAMP, they're going to start moving that into and getting them authorized, as well as the changes in the guidance that are coming out 
uh, or the guy, the new guidance that's coming out from OMB. I think that's a positive change. There's also bringing on additional staff, which we identified as a critical issue, as well as the need for automating some of the security processes. They're working on bringing that online as well. And maybe people in the government and people in the industry may not realize that when you talk about the piece of industry that needs to be FedRAMP authorized, it's not just the prime commercial cloud providers. You know, a million dollars to get certified or a couple of million, you know, for Amazon, that's like 10 seconds worth of revenue. But for many of the, there's a huge ecosystem of small cyber suppliers and other types of suppliers, integrators that provide cloud services to get you to those big primes. For them, it can be cumbersome and expensive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's a really good point. It's not just the big names we hear about in the news. It's the smaller better known minority-owned businesses, small businesses um, that litter the federal landscape. You know, in fiscal year 22, uh, the federal government obligated $7 billion for cloud services. In fact, if you look at the numbers, we track authorizations went from 926 cloud authorizations in 2019 to almost 1,500 in 2023. So the government is moving into the cloud, and that's not all with these big names we talked about. And so I think it's really incumbent on OMB and GSA to move FedRAMP to a place where it's standardized, where someone who wants to get into it can truly understand what they're getting into. And that's looking at the cost, knowing the process they're going to have to do and making sure that that whole process moves as quickly and efficiently as possible. Dave Hinchman is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his cloud report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a contractor's email attachment binds the government in a work order, or tries to. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Sometimes paperwork is just paper. A contractor submitted three bids for a contract to remove medical waste at facilities operated by Health and Human Services. Only the middle of the three bids included an attachment. When it won the contract on the third bid, the company figured the terms in the attachment on the second bid applied. The government disagreed. Here with what happened, Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And this sounds like something totally arcane, but the contractor really went in with some strange expectations, sounds like. Yeah, Tom, you know, during the course of bidding or quoting government contracts, often there are documents that are exchanged both by the contractor and by the government. And a question that comes up and is sometimes important is which of those documents ultimately become part of the binding contract between the government and the contractor. I think the way you described it is correct, that this was a civilian board of contract appeals case involving a contract for disposing of pharmaceutical waste. And the contractor included, as you said, in their second quote, this ESA. ESA stands for? Environmental Services Agreement. Got it. Okay. The reason they thought the Environmental Services Agreement would be part of the contract was because of discussions they had during the quoting process with the government. And they included an email in the record before the civilian board indicating that they were attaching the ESA and providing it to the contract specialist. And the email mentioned, you know, that they were providing it as discussed. 
So this was something that came up in the quoting process, and there was at least an informal understanding that it would be part of the purchase order that resulted from the quote. All right. And what was in that attachment that became so important here? So the requirement specifically in the ESA that became important was that the government was to provide a waste profile describing the waste before the contractor would come and pick it up and dispose of the waste. And ultimately, in performance, after the purchase order was awarded, Clean Harbors, the contractor here, received a request to pick up and dispose of waste from the government And the contractor responded, requesting a waste profile, which the government didn't provide. So the company expected the government to abide by that ESA it had attached, and the government thought it was just an attachment from an earlier bid that didn't have anything to do with the task order. Well, whether or not the government thought it was part of the contract, they later argued that it wasn't. There may have been an informal understanding between the contractor and the contract specialist that this requirement would apply through the ESA, but that doesn't necessarily make it part of the contract. Right. So the contractor's expectation the government was going to do such and such per the ESA, the government didn't consider the ESA part of the contract, and so it came to kind of a standstill, the whole thing. Right. So the contractor asked for the waste profile. There was no requirement for a waste profile to be provided except in the CSA that the government would argue wasn't part of the contract. And after the government didn't provide the waste profile, contractor didn't pick up the waste. Ultimately, the contract was terminated for cause. In the government's view, then, the contractor, again, Clean Harbors Environmental Services, simply wasn't performing in the government's view. That's right. And Clean Harbors said that it didn't have an obligation to pick up the waste until the government provided the waste profile. All right. They got to this point where the termination happened. And then what did Clean Harbors Environmental Services do? So following the termination, Clean Harbors appealed to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals, challenging the termination for cause. And the thrust of their argument, at least in this initial decision, was that the ESA again, was part of the contract, and the government was required to provide a waste profile before the contractor was required to pick up the waste. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And yeah, this gets really crucial then, because if that ESA requiring the waste profiles was not in the actual contract, this is something apparently the company overlooked, because what you sign is the contract, not the attachments in the bid. And so if those terms weren't incorporated, this is something it sounds like the contractor missed. Yes, the contractor apparently didn't catch that the purchase order didn't specifically reference the ESA. The purchase order incorporated the third quote, which didn't detach the environmental services agreement. All right. And so what did the contract appeals board say here? So the board first looked at the purchase order itself. There was a section of the purchase order, section D, that listed documents that were part of the contract. And those included the statement of work and Clean Harbor's third and final quote. But again, the quote itself didn't attach or reference the ESA and at least that third quote that was actually incorporated. And the ESA wasn't otherwise listed in Section D or otherwise referenced in the contract. And it wasn't attached to the purchase order either. Clean Harbors pointed to language in the RFQ that allowed the contractors to submit equal items with supporting descriptive literature, and the contractor argued that it was doing that with the ESA, that it was providing an equal services offering with this waste profile requirement. But the board said that language in the RFQ was 
calling for the contractor to provide descriptive literature to support that the items met the requirements of the RFQ, not to alter the terms and conditions. Interesting. So they might as well have attached a Girl Scout cookie order for all the effect it had on the final contract or the final order. That That's right. Uh, <laughs> Just to put it, it, it bluntly. Didn't, it didn't really matter what else was uh, attached to their quotation because it wasn't specifically referenced in the final purchase order. And there's actually quite a high standard for incorporating documents by reference into a government contract. And the civilian board quoted from the Federal Circuit case law on this point. The language used in the contract to incorporate extrinsic material by reference must explicitly or at least precisely identify the written material being incorporated and must clearly communicate that the purpose of the reference is to incorporate the reference material into the contract rather than merely to acknowledge that the reference material is relevant to the contract, such as background law or negotiating history. And there you have it. So it's got to be explicit and carry over into what is eventually signed by the two parties. That's right. If there's no mention of it in the contract, unsurprisingly, it it doesn't automatically become part of the contract just because it was part of the discussions during the quoting or bidding process. Right. And the uh, Civilian Board of Contract Appeals also looked at the content of that attachment and found a bunch of other things that the government could not have complied with even if it wanted to. That's right. So the ESA didn't only include this waste profile requirement, but it also specified application of Massachusetts governing law, and it provided for different payment terms than what the purchase order provided. So inconsistent and illegal terms in that attachment also were factors for the board saying, hey, this couldn't have been part of the contract in any case. Sounds like the contractor attached a piece of boilerplate that nobody proofread to update for federal versus Massachusetts or wherever else they do business. I'm just guessing. I think that's right. And, you know, in the commercial marketplace, documentation is exchanged all the time, and the Battle of the Forms is a common process. But there's a particularly high standard in government contracts for incorporating documentation by reference to make it part of the contract. And this becomes important in some cases for the contractor, but in other cases for the government. For example, the government sometimes wants to rely on particular material included in a contractor's proposal. And so the government also has to be explicit about incorporating a proposal and which parts of the proposal become part of the contract. Yeah, you can see why there is a high bar. Someone could attach the King James Bible or something and then you know say, well, we stone you if you don't perform this contract or something. And so that's the reason that there's a lot of things people could slip in. And so you have to be careful what you reference. Yes, there's a large volume of information that is exchanged during the proposal process. So it's important to be explicit about what's actually the contract and what's just other information. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Office of Personnel Management holds tons of data about you, the federal workforce, In fact, it's a full-time job just making sure that sensitive information stays in the right hands. Data privacy work is only going to get more complicated as artificial intelligence comes into the picture. For a look at the evolving nature of this work, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the OPM's chief privacy officer, Kirsten Moncada. We have to have data to do our job. And of course, now that we have increased data capabilities, we we can really extract more value from the data. But of course, we still 
have to comply with law and policy and be fair in our use. And again, like ensure that we maintain the public trust in how we're handling, especially personally identifiable information. Um, and the Chief Data Officers Council is a great example. Their goal is let's extract the value we can, right? But they have been fabulous partners. And we really have worked closely with them. It's funny, people are worried that, oh, if we bring privacy and they're going to tell us we can't do something. And what we really try to strive is to say, well, yes, of course, if the law says you can't do something, you can't do something. But more often than not, it's not yes or no, it's here's how to do it in a way that is fair and that preserves privacy, but that still allows you to gain value and innovate while protecting the people that we're all here to serve. Speaking of all of this, I think it's just kind of worth noting that we do live in a day and an age where there is so much data about all of us out there. Case in point, I got a notice in the mail the other day that my dental insurance provider had a data breach and they had to notify me that my information was affected by it. And I think for most Americans, they have some version of that happen at least once. Given that unfortunate reality of just the times that we live in, how do you see the work given that uphill battle? Yeah, I think the field has really evolved. And indeed, we have government-wide policy guidance that instructs us really to move away from privacy governance as being simply a compliance check-the-box exercise and to move much more towards a strategic, comprehensive, continuous risk management approach to the program. And I think you're right, the constant evolving and increase in capabilities, tech and data, it necessitates that. So, and that's why really it is so important that chief data officers, the security officers, the statistical officials that have unique abilities to look at an aggregate data set and see how things could be re-identified, people could be re-identified. Privacy Folks have to partner with all of those people, you know, to really so that we can all together, like you said, manage this records management used to be this little tiny thing that managed paper, you know, which even then was big. But now it's just, as you said, with the tech and data capabilities, it's huge. And it requires all of these data related disciplines. In addition to the people that are in agencies that are actually using the data, right? Like we all have to work together and it has to be really everybody's business to some degree, because unless we understand how our agency is using data, what they're doing with it, how they're doing it, what needs they have, that's the only way that we can really begin assessing and managing privacy risk. And speaking of kind of the technological evolution from paper to digital to so on and so forth, one thing that we've seen pretty recently is just this explosion of artificial intelligence outside of government and increasingly inside of government, given not just uh, challenges, but opportunities of AI. How do you see something like AI having an impact on the work of chief privacy officers in government? Yeah, the impact of AI on privacy and all information management work is huge. And it's obviously only going to get bigger because um, AI runs on data, right? Um, and just as in any other kind of application, we have to ensure that we are using and processing that data in a way that's fair and protects individuals' privacy. The recent executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy AI, you know, clearly states that Americans' privacy has to be protected 
and that, you know, as the federal government, we will ensure that the collection use and the retention of data in AI is lawful, secure, and mitigates privacy risk. So our regular work of assessing how we as agencies collect and use information so that we can ensure compliance and manage risk with AI, it's just with tremendous new complexities that AI brings. But in a way, it's something that privacy professionals are kind of I don't know if used to, but have certainly experienced before. I mean, boons in tech and data capabilities have always historically brought more work for privacy professionals. You look back to the 70s when the Privacy Act came into being, that was, oh no, we're, you know, we're having governments going to start using computers. That tech boon is what really caused, you know, the federal government to come up with the fair information practice principles that have formed the basis of every privacy framework law worldwide. And then, of course, when the internet came, it's not like a constant rise. I always say it's like we have a tech thing and we, you know, then it kind of levels off, then something else happens. Now with AI, we might be on a constant going straight up in terms of, you know, increased work and complexity. But it's it's really bringing that same philosophy and analysis to a new application or environment, but it's kept it like exciting and ever-changing and challenging. It sounds like what you're saying that this current AI age that we're entering or have already entered is a similar kind of inflection point to that e-gov, digital gov era of when agencies started to become more computer savvy, making computers a, a foundational element of how they do business. You see those things being similar type uh, inflection points for policy? Yeah, I mean, I think this has happened, you know, I don't know, like similar in terms of degree, AI might be more intense. I, I got that, I, I, that I don't know that I have the tech enough to compare as one more than, but I do think we've had periods in time where things happen and tech developments and data capabilities cause increased need for privacy. And I can finish that sentence in multiple different ways. You need more people working on it. You need more attention to it. You need to rethink how you're applying the principles and all of that. But it just is more of a focus. Obviously, AI is so new still. Like, there may be new things. There will be new things. But we just don't know yet even what they all are, right? And I think they, even the executive order realized that and said, look, agencies, you're going to be required to ensure that you have AI and other talent-related needs, and they specifically called out tech governance and privacy reflected in as you continue to strategically plan your workforce and that sort of things, because it's it's just going to keep evolving. But I do think that a lot of times the privacy stuff just kind of follows these changes in tech and data innovation. Kirsten Moncada, the chief privacy officer at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Hear the entire interview on All About Data, airing this Wednesday, February 7th at 2.30. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 